Internet harassment, also referred to as cyberbullying, is the term used to describe the use of the internet to harass, threaten, or maliciously embarrass. The following is a true story. The names have been changed out of respect for the involved parties as well as the ongoing criminal investigation. This podcast contains graphic content. You're a sick fucking cunt that has wasted your life and countless others. Be careful. You completely and utterly disgust me in every way I want to vomit. Burn in hell, you fucking cunt. It's funny how many people are calling the slut a prostitute. Do you really think people are going to feel sorry for you? God, I can't wait till she dies and rots in hell. What if all of that hate was directed at you? How would it make you feel to read those comments about yourself, knowing your friends and family could see what people were saying about you? What if it didn't stop at just words? When a private video I sent my boyfriend was posted online, he should have been the first person I called, but I knew he wouldn't answer. Not because he didn't want to be there for me or support me or help me figure out how it happened. I knew he wouldn't answer because someone else had taken control of his phone, blocked my number, and forcibly removed me from his life. The circumstances surrounding my case are complicated and confusing but I'll do my best to paint an accurate picture of the events that forced me to empty my bank account to hire a digital forensics team to stop the ongoing cyber attacks, pursue and criminally charge the people responsible for stealing and posting the video. If you're following along on the website we've created at mycyberassault.com, you'll see photos, screenshots, and supporting documents for everything I'm about to explain. Every post, comment, and text is accounted for, and the content has not been altered in any way other than blurring out the names and replacing them to match those in this podcast. Chapter 1. The Call I was visiting my family in Central California when I got a call that would change the course of my life. A friend was dead and my boyfriend was in critical condition. I rushed back to Los Angeles trying to put the pieces together as I drove. I was at his apartment the day before. We'd been fighting, but he seemed fine when I left. My boyfriend, who I will call Brad, is one of those good-time guys you love to have at a party, comfortable as the center of attention, but never trying to steal the spotlight from anyone else. Brad is almost too good-looking, charming and quick with a smile and a courtesy laugh. He hates awkward silences and will fill them by making a fool of himself just so no one else is uncomfortable. We grew up in the same small town but didn't meet until about six years ago when we were both living in L.A. We met up a few times, but it never went anywhere. We were too different. After I quit my job and started traveling internationally full-time, we reconnected on one of my visits home. My life had changed drastically from the seriousness and structure of a network news reporter to the more free-spirited gypsy I'd become. Boyfriend Brad had what I used to call a ridiculous lifestyle. He was trying to be an actor, but not really pursuing it. He had worked as a bartender, but never really had a steady job. His parents paid for him to live in L.A., and he wasn't expected to do much of anything. So, while I thought that was absurd at his age, it actually worked for me since I had gone from a responsible full-time professional to a homeless world traveler. I took Brad with me to nine countries over the next year. I didn't care that he didn't have a job. I loved how available he was to travel. I didn't mind paying for him since I had finally started earning an income as a travel blogger and author. But as with every relationship, there were ups and downs. Lately, mostly downs. I fell in love with Brad's fun, carefree personality, but as our relationship matured and became more serious, I expected him to evolve and pick a lane. He just didn't. I was home from traveling and staying with Brad and his two roommates at his apartment in Venice, and we were fighting a lot. I actually left in the middle of the night the day before I got the call that one of his roommates had died. The officer on the scene told me it looked like an overdose. 
Boyfriend Brad's roommate lived a very big life. I'll call him Mark in this story, but he actually went by his first name followed by Spring Break on social media. His personal tagline was crazy controlled chaos. Mark was in his late 40s and worked as an ER nurse. He made good money but drove an old truck that he used to brag hadn't been washed in years. He was always kind to me, even though my being there disrupted the Never Neverland vibe of the apartment. Mark loved to party and spent most of his time off going to concerts and music festivals, but he treated his job with the respect it deserved. He never missed work, and when he put on his scrubs, he was there to save people. And he did. My boyfriend Brad and Mark weren't just roommates. They were good friends. Mark enjoyed being around young people and was always the life of the party, despite being the same age as his roommate's parents. Hearing that he was dead was a huge shock, but I didn't have time to process it since I was mentally preparing myself for what condition Brad would be in when I saw him. My boyfriend was hospitalized for over a month as a result of the physical injuries he sustained the day his roommate died. While he was being treated, it was discovered that he had a brain injury that severely affected his memory. Brad's inability to retain new information or process thoughts and memories clearly is central to this story. In the first few days of Brad's treatment, I was in the hospital with him alone only leaving once to clean up alcohol bottles, drugs, and vomit from all over the apartment in case the landlord stopped by. The police had come and gone, but I didn't want Brad dealing with an eviction on top of everything else. Brad's mother, who I will call Susan, came down a few days later, and for the next few weeks, she and I sat bedside, splitting a 24-hour day. Susan and I have always had a strained relationship. She had Brad when she was very young and was a single mom. Since it was just her and Brad against the world, they had a very special and close bond. And like most mother-son relationships, Brad could do no wrong. Even after meeting her current husband and having two more children later in life, their bond remained strong. Because of their close relationship, boyfriend Brad overshared with her, giving up private and personal details about how we were navigating what would eventually become an exclusive relationship. I was traveling the world, flying her son to foreign countries, toying with the idea of turning our fling into something more serious, but not quite willing to commit. I didn't think I cared what she thought of me, until she told one of Brad's exes that her biggest fear was that he would tell her I was the one. I remember being surprised by how much that hurt me. I wanted her to like me, but I wasn't going to change to be what she wanted. Brad's mom Susan is the kind of woman who would have live, laugh, love quotes framed as art in her home. She was once described to me by a friend of Brad's as the cool mom in Mean Girls, played by Amy Poehler. Before coming down to L.A. to help me with Brad, his mother had never been away from her husband or daughters for more than two days. She was in a strange place, staying alone in a hotel for the first time, and dealing with the fact that she almost lost her son. She was completely overwhelmed and constantly leaving the room in tears. I couldn't begin to understand the pain she must have been feeling as a mother, seeing her son on his deathbed. So I did the only thing I knew how to do to ease her suffering. I took control. As horrible as the situation in the hospital was, I thought the silver lining would be that Brad's mom Susan would see how much I loved her son and finally understand how we'd managed to stay together through such tough times. I hoped my loyalty and ability to manage a crisis would count for something. Once boyfriend Brad was transferred to an inpatient rehab center in our hometown, things got complicated. Cool mom Susan was back on her home turf. She didn't need me anymore, and she didn't want me telling anyone what really happened to her son. Even though Brad's injuries were directly related to a bender that his roommate didn't survive, Susan didn't want him to be confronted by any of it. Her efforts to downplay her son's near-fatal overdose put in motion a series of events that has deeply harmed everyone involved. Chapter 2. The Photo In the first few days of Brad's hospitalization, we knew nothing about the circumstances that led to his life-threatening injuries. 
Desperate to give his doctors any possible advantage, I met up with Brad's other roommate, who I'll refer to as Phil. He'd been staying with his family since Mark's death, but met me at the apartment once I told him I'd cleaned everything. The overwhelming smell of vomit had kept him from going back inside after the coroner left. Roommate Phil is a shy tech guy in his mid-twenties. He had the master bedroom with a fully stocked mini-fridge, so he would only venture out to use the microwave or occasionally participate in drunken karaoke. Mark would belt out an 80s glam rock ballad, Brad's go-to was The Fray, and I can't sing, so I would go with a performance number like Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. Having everyone in one room was rare. You couldn't find four people more different, but somehow it worked. Roommate Phil is the one who found their other roommate Mark's body. It was still hard for him to talk about, but I needed answers. I asked if he knew how boyfriend Brad had been laying when he was unconscious. He didn't remember, but said he could check a photo he took of them as a joke that day. When roommate Phil snapped the photo of Mark slumped over on their couch, drink and phone in hand, he had no idea that his friend was dead. The scene struck Phil as funny because it was 3 p.m. on a Sunday, and not only was Mark passed out sitting up, Brad was out cold on the tile floor at his feet, which wasn't uncommon at the Venice apartment. He sent me the photo and I went back to the hospital, hoping it would help. I showed the photo to my boyfriend, his doctors, and his mother. I warned her that it was unsettling, but I was glad she asked to see it. I wanted Brad's mom, Susan, to understand the gravity of the situation. I heard her on the phone telling her husband that Brad's roommate died in his sleep and had a history of heart problems. Brad's cousin later told me his mom led her and some of his friends to believe that carbon monoxide may have been to blame for Mark's death and Brad's injuries. With cool mom, Susan, doing everything in her power to cover up her son's obvious drug overdose, I went into panic mode. If his own mother wasn't going to take his near-death seriously, I felt like I had to make Brad understand why he was in the hospital and use the photo as a scare tactic if I had to. Because of his brain injury, most days Brad didn't even remember that his roommate had died. Sometimes I showed him the photo as a way of bypassing the back and forth that would end with him insisting he was fine and would be released later that day. I recorded the following voice note in the hospital. The other voice you hear is Brad's. How long do you think you've been in the hospital? Just today. Today? What is this test? They're it's not a test. Just I'm just asking. What's going on. You've been in the hospital for almost 18 days now. That's right. Like my short term is shot. Do you remember meeting with the physical therapist earlier? I don't remember having a conversation. Okay, it's okay. I love you. Love you too. I had to tell my boyfriend that his friend was dead several times a day. Sometimes he would accept it. Other times he would argue, even calling me a liar. I was alone. I was exhausted, and I did the best I could. Maybe showing him the photo was too harsh. Maybe I should have waited for his memory to get better before forcing him to face the facts. But each new day brought on a new nightmare I had never dealt with before. About two weeks into Brad's hospitalization, I got a screenshot from a friend showing a conversation Brad was currently having. A friend reached out to see how Brad was doing, and he said he would come visit him in the hospital. Brad responded, I'm not really in bad shape. Maybe we can drink a beer tonight. Our friend thought he was joking, so he said, Haha, at the hospital? Nah, I can leave during the day, I guess. If I make a good thing up, we can just meet there. Brad had that conversation via text while hooked up to a dialysis machine that was giving him his third treatment because his kidneys were in total failure. He couldn't walk and had no feeling in his left hand or foot. When I got back to the hospital, I asked what he planned to make up that would somehow get him out of the hospital while hooked up to a dozen machines that were keeping him alive. He laughed. He said he'd ask our friend to bring in the beers instead. I pulled up the picture of Mark, presumably dead on the couch, and Brad passed out on the floor at his feet, and I handed it to him. I asked if he still thought it was funny. 
Seeing Brad study a picture of his dead friend as if it was the first time he'd seen it, knowing I'd shown it to him probably five times, was heart-wrenching. I made my point, but it felt horrible. I was sobbing by then and had to leave the room. I don't know if using that photo to get his attention was right or wrong, but every time Brad saw it, he remembered more about what happened and why he was in the hospital. Brad's mom hated that I kept showing him the photo, partly because it upset him, but also because she didn't want anyone else to see it. It put her son at the scene of Mark's death and made it clear his roommate didn't just pass away in his sleep like she'd been telling people. As far as Susan was concerned, the photo needed to go, and so did I. Once Brad was transferred to the rehab hospital where his mother lives, she started pushing me out. Cool mom Susan had resorted to removing photos of me from her son's hospital room. When Brad messaged her about the pictures, she responded, I took the pictures. I've had enough of her rude and condescending ways and blatant disrespect towards me and our family. I don't need to see her face when I come visit you. I'm your mother, for Christ's sake. I decided to head back down to L.A. to get my stuff from my boyfriend's apartment and let everyone cool off. When I stopped by the hospital to tell Brad I'd be leaving for a few days, I had no idea the length Susan would go to keep me from ever seeing him again. I hadn't been gone even one day from her son's bedside when she turned on me, telling his late roommate's family that I was showing people the photo of Mark and Brad passed out post-bender. By the time Mark's niece, who I'll refer to as Karen, confronted me via text, she was incensed. When talking to the family of a man who just died, there's no acceptable reason to have a photo of their deceased loved one. I never met any of Mark's family, but he talked about them a lot. Mark's parents passed away and he didn't have any kids, so his nieces were special to him. He'd just taken time off work to officiate one of their weddings. We'd never spoken before, but I was the one to tell niece Karen that her uncle had passed away. I was at the apartment cleaning when she called Brad's phone. She sounded young, but like she'd lived a hard life. Her uncle meant a lot to her and her sister. They were devastated. We exchanged a few texts over the next couple weeks. I kept niece Karen updated on Brad's condition and helped her coordinate getting her uncle Mark's room cleaned out. The previous text I had from niece Karen was a thank you. She told me when we first talked that she wanted her uncle's truck, so I'd been leaving the hospital to move it every day to keep it from being ticketed or towed until she made arrangements to pick it up. But once she was told I had a photo of her dead uncle and cool mom Susan led her to believe I was parading it around town, her texts understandably turned hostile. I was going through my own personal hell that day, being back in boyfriend Brad's apartment without him, knowing his mother was trying to erase me from his memory. I was already upset, so I didn't take her accusations well. Instead of understanding her anger in that moment was coming from pain and being lied to, I was furious at my boyfriend's mother, Susan, so I lashed out at the grieving niece. Our conversation only got worse and Karen went nuclear. In a public Facebook post on Mark's page, Karen tagged me and wrote, Dear all, let me introduce you to Sabrina Sabah, the woman who has a picture of our beloved Uncle Mark dead on his couch and is trotting around town showing people and has not an ounce of respect in her little free-loading soul to delete it when asked. 2017 Piece of Shit Award goes to... The attack started within seconds. The post had 217 comments before Facebook finally removed it for violating the community standards. Brad's ex-girlfriend, who I'll call Kate, was one of the first to comment. I met Kate once several years ago. She had one of those perfectly symmetrical faces that makes her effortlessly pretty. I wanted to like her. I even tried to commiserate with her about some of Brad's annoying behaviors. Nothing too damning, but just a way to break the ice. I think we laughed about him being too good-looking. The next day, she called Susan to tell her I was bad-mouthing her son. As all cool moms do, Brad's mother remained friends with Kate long after their breakup. In response to Mark's niece's Facebook post about me, 
ex-girlfriend Kate wrote, Actually, the rumor in Venice is Sabrina was there the night he died and actually supplied them with the drugs, which killed Mark and put Brad in the hospital. Brad's mom told me they want to get a restraining order against her. I didn't want to get involved in any of this, but putting pictures on the internet just proves how fucking ill she is. Within five minutes of ex-girlfriend Kate mentioning cool mom Susan in her comment, it was edited to remove any reference to Brad's mother. Susan was watching all of this unfold in real time and could have easily ended it by clarifying that the photo had never been posted. Instead, she lit a match and walked away. Along with the personal attacks, they decided to go after my business. You can leave her a one-star review on her business page, which you cannot dispute on Facebook, FYI. Smiley face. Your review and one-star rating, which will bring her five stars down, will stay there forever. There is no way to take it down. Unfortunately, that's as true as it is awful. I had to unpublish my business pages to prevent further baseless one-star reviews from people I've never done business with. My blog, Facebook page, Instagram, and book sales are my only source of income, and the attacks forced me to pull all of them. I haven't made a dime since Mark's family and Brad's mother launched their cyber assault. Other comments on niece Karen's Facebook post included, I was browsing through her website, and I was thinking to myself, I bet she sells her snatch. She comes across as someone who's got her shit together, travels the world, but she's actually just a prostitute. God, I can't wait till she dies and rots in hell. It's funny how many people are calling the slut a prostitute. Before the post was removed, my phone number was made public, and I got the following texts. I hear you have some nice pics. Burn in hell, you fucking cunt. I know you were there that night. You're a sick fucking cunt that has wasted your life and countless others. Be careful. Those texts came from a man named Joe. That is his real name, because fuck that guy. Joe lived nearby and was friends with Mark but my boyfriend knew him pretty well too. When I read the text to Brad recently, he was shocked. He described Joe as nice, sweet even. Like Brad, I was floored that an unsubstantiated Facebook claim would drive a grown man to threaten me. Niece Karen's Facebook posts had gone from a public shaming for simply having a photo that someone else sent me to an all-out assault where people I've never met living out of state were accusing me of murder in the death of Mark who died from an accidental but self-induced overdose from drugs he took from the hospital where he worked. Despite my being out of town visiting my family when I got the call that Mark was dead, each comment and text to the contrary emboldened the attackers. Before he died, none of Mark's friends or family even knew my name, but by the time niece Karen's post on Mark's page was removed by Facebook, his entire social network blamed me for his death. Tech guy roommate Phil stayed out of the online drama, but as the person who actually took the photo and reported the death, he knew the suggestion that I was there or somehow involved was ridiculous, but it would only get crazier. Cool mom Susan, who was reading all of the comments, capitalized on the conspiracy theories and left roommate Phil a voicemail warning him that I was dangerous and that Brad was worried I was stealing his things. Brad's brain injury made it hard for him to differentiate between real memories and suggested ones. His mother convinced him that I had seduced shy tech guy Phil and he was lying for me. When roommate Phil refused to kick me out of the apartment, cool mom Susan told the landlord I was a thief and a drug dealer and had me thrown out. Cool mom Susan's recent behavior and access to Brad's phone had me worried. I tried to get in touch with him to tell him to delete all of the private photos and videos we'd sent back and forth over the years. I didn't know what was going to happen next, but based on how vicious cool mom Susan, niece Karen, and ex-girlfriend Kate were being, I had a sinking feeling the attacks might escalate. Unfortunately... Brad had lost control of his devices by then, and my plea fell on deaf ears. Shame. 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 Chapter 3. The Shaming. At 9.16pm on October 31st, one of the videos I pleaded with Brad to delete just days earlier 
was sent to 1,127 of my friends, colleagues, and family members. The feeling you get when you realize your naked body has been sent to hundreds of people is indescribable unless you've had it happen to you. But imagine being punched in the throat and stomach simultaneously while trying to fight your way through quicksand. It's like that. I got a text from a girlfriend. Hey girl, I got some message from your Facebook page. When I opened the text, I saw a screenshot of the message she received. At the top, a polished headshot photo of me with my name and employment info. Just below my smiling face, a grainy topless video with a large play button providing equal parts coverage and torment. It took me a second before I realized what I was looking at. I expanded the image and stabbed at the play button, half knowing it was a screen grab that wouldn't play but still trying anyway, confused and disoriented. By that point, it was hard to breathe. My face was filling up with blood and my vision was blurry as I frantically launched the Facebook app. My fingers were jabbing at the screen while I tried to push back tears. I had no time to cry. I was still looking for an explanation that didn't involve my naked body being catapulted into the homes, purses, and pockets of people I barely even know. Or worse, people I do know. My brain was on delay, crippled with shame and fear, but my fingers were still going light speed. Scrolling and typing, trying desperately to figure out how to stop something that had already happened. I was shaking. I couldn't keep the tears from falling. People were staring. Online, surely, but then in person, too. I was mortified. That message was from a former colleague at Fox News. Someone made a fake account. Unless you wanted to send me a naked video of someone who could easily be mistaken for you. As much as I find you attractive and cool, I feel like that isn't your character. More notifications. I got a Facebook message from a man I've never met. Hi, Sabrina. Someone using your name just sent me a topless video. I assume it's not you in the video. Just thought you should know. Smiley face. Even in my sheer panic and confusion, my eyes paused on that smiley face emoji. Really? Sorry your tits are in my face without your permission. Have a good summer, smiley face. More messages. I was sitting alone in a takeaway taco place in Los Angeles, staring at my phone, wishing I could call my boyfriend, but knowing I was blocked, and sobbing uncontrollably. I got a flood of messages saying the account and video had been removed. While it was happening, it felt like an eternity, but everything I just described happened between 9.16pm and 9.27pm. The fake account had been active for only 11 minutes. I knew the threat wasn't over. I wasn't sure who posted the video, but I knew if they had one, they had more. I updated my Facebook status to say I had been hacked and warned my friends not to open any messages from anyone posing as me. I felt an immediate need to explain away the video. Sure, it had been stolen and posted without my consent, but why did it even exist? Were people thinking, man, that sucks, but she did it to herself? I kept remembering comments left on news stories I used to report on. Anytime there was a sex tape scandal or celebrity phone hack, the comments were always the same. If they don't want people to see naked photos of them, they shouldn't have them on their phone. Debbie, Indiana. What do these people expect? Stop filming yourself having sex and you won't have anything to worry about. Linda, Illinois. This could never happen to my daughter. She isn't stupid enough to send a guy a naked video. Brenda, Nevada. But these weren't strangers. I sent a text to Brad's cousin, who I went to high school with, and begged her to help me get in touch with him, or at least make sure all the private content on his phone had been deleted to stop more from getting out. She responded, My God, how many are there, lol? No wonder why you're freaking out. This woman decided to choose that moment to not only laugh out loud, but also to slut-shame me. So I asked her, how many would be acceptable? She apologized that her comment didn't come out right, and perhaps it was too soon for jokes. 
Not only was I dealing with my boyfriend's life-threatening injuries and a forced separation from him, I was in the middle of a cyber attack targeting my personal and professional pages and income, and still fielding character assaults disguised as concern from other women. Some people would say that engaging in photo and video-based sexting is risky behavior. And I agree, it can be. But there's a reason that after over a decade of sending nudes back and forth, this is the first time anything has been posted. No man I've ever been in a relationship with has done this to me. And that includes my boyfriend Brad, the only intended recipient of the now public video. Chapter 4. The Threats In the days following the release of the video, I tried everything to get a hold of my boyfriend, but all of my attempts were anticipated and intercepted. I was blocked from all of his devices and social media. When I tried to reach out from friends' accounts, those got blocked too. Being forcibly removed from Brad's life at a time when I actually needed him more than he needed me was unfathomable. I was alone and in pain, too embarrassed to show my face anywhere I knew anyone. I was still in house limbo after getting kicked out of Brad's apartment, but too ashamed to head back to my hometown to face my parents and the majority of my Facebook friends and recipients of the video. Sitting alone in a shitty motel in LA, I started to get harassing text messages and calls from blocked numbers. And remember Karen, Mark's niece? She messaged me the day after the video was posted. You thought I was kidding when I told you Uncle Mark comes from a long line of crazy. Brad's mother is the least of your problems. You made it to the top of everyone's shit list. Think about that. I wouldn't want my botched boobs online either. My boobs had just been delivered to hundreds of inboxes, and niece Karen felt it was important to tell me they didn't even look good for their 11 minutes of fame. Her final text read, Technology is quite the thing. Phones are hacked. It's amazing what boys send to one another. So many possibilities. Bye, Sabrina. Enjoy your day. Later that night, the anonymous text started. Hi, Sabrina. I saw your video and pictures on Facebook. Do you have any more you want to share? Are you for hire? I would love to put my big cock in that asshole. Despite the male-driven language, the number, although anonymous, belongs to a woman. When I called, the voicemail greeting was a woman's voice. She continued to text. Want to play a game? Let's see what we can share next. Do you really think people are going to feel sorry for you? In that last message, they included a topless photo of me. They weren't done. My friends and family were going to be spammed with my naked body again, and there was no way I could stop it. By the next day, nothing new had been posted, but the harassment wasn't over. They kept texting me from different unknown numbers. Happy Saturday! After posting that message, several people reached out wanting the videos and pictures. I happily obliged to share. By the way, the videos and pictures will be released online tonight. Best wishes, bitch. I waited, braced myself. Nothing came. I've been looking at your pictures, my dad. I can't stop looking at that one of your ads, you know that? Chapter 5. The Angry Mob. Are you like That's a man who calls himself Mike. He claims he found my number on a sex site, saying I was for hire. Are you like No, because I don't believe you because you're not sending me anything or a link. That's what it said, but it was you. <laughs> Where is this posted? I don't know, I can send it to you probably. Mike, just like Sweet Joe, who messaged me to burn in hell, are guys you could be standing in line with at the grocery store. You could walk past cool mom Susan, niece Karen, or ex-girlfriend Kate and have no idea that these people are capable of such vile behavior. And that's why I'm telling this story. All of the people who have attacked and harassed me believe they're justified, yet still hide behind computer screens. My boyfriend's mom would tell you she's protecting her son. Mark's family thinks I was making a mockery of their uncle's death. Brad's ex-girlfriend Kate and sweet texting Joe believe I actually killed Mark and put my own boyfriend in the hospital. 
All of these people have gone out of their way, some committing felonies just to hurt me. These are all fairly normal, average people who clearly got swept up in a mob mentality, using their keyboards and thumbs as pitchforks. My boyfriend almost died and I spent a month by his hospital bed, unsure if he would ever fully recover or even walk again. His memory loss was used as a way to trick and confuse him to force me out of his life. I delayed my travel plans to stay and take care of Brad, expecting to be able to stay at his apartment, which I was kicked out of for stealing things that were never taken. My reputation was destroyed online by people who were lied to and convinced I deserved to be attacked without any evidence that I had done anything wrong. My online business and only source of income continues to be attacked as brutally as my personal profiles, leaving me stranded and financially crippled, even as of today. Along with comments about how I should die in a fire, these strangers even took issue with my battle with cancer, making light of something that nearly killed me in my 20s. Is this a girl who claimed to have cancer? She has cancer of, quote, unknown origin and had to, quote, quit her job. And then there's the prostitution references. A woman I'll call Ashley commented, I doubt she remembers five years ago when I met her, she told me before her slut-funded prostitution trip that she was on a bunch of websites getting guys to pay for it by being a slut. I've been backpacking around the world for the last three and a half years. I have no problem with actual prostitutes, but if I was willing to have sex for money, I wouldn't be couch surfing and staying in hostels. Of all the slander, defamation, and blatant lies, that attempt to shame me is actually something I'm not embarrassed by at all. After beating cancer and getting my life back, I was on every dating site. Conventional, alternative, I tried them all. I was in my mid-20s and I had a new lease on life, quite literally. I was up for anything, and I have no regrets. Even cool mom Susan jumped on the prostitution bandwagon. The messages Susan sent me from Brad's Facebook page continue to shock and disturb me. I saw he was online for the first time in weeks and hoped it might really be him. I reached out, and this is what I got back. Fuck off. Stop fucking with my family. You blew it. You are trash. My son was minutes away from dying and you were still mind-fucking him. I have a close-knit family. I'm sorry you don't know what that's like. Maybe had you not made frequent trips to the abortion clinic, you'd have a spawn just as evil as you are and have a little parenting experience. Thank God for small favors. You completely and utterly disgust me in every way. I want to vomit. Maybe you can turn a new leaf. Tell your friends and family how you really make a living. Set yourself free. Ask for forgiveness. By the way, he had a great birthday. I even told him if he wanted to be with you, I would call you, and he insisted he did not want that. But I'll be sure and let you know if he changes his mind. Susan sent that message with the confidence that no one would ever know she would say such horrible things, because what she said about me would keep a normal person from ever making it public. But I'm no longer a normal person. I'm a broken shell of the person I was before this happened. I've lost everything. And this woman I held and cried with over her son's hospital bed decided to kick me as hard as she could when I was down as low as I thought I could go. It doesn't even matter that what she's saying isn't true. Because even if I had a frequent abortion punch card or actually made a living as a sex worker, that level of ugliness should not exist. In an effort to further silence me, Susan hit me with a restraining order that included 31-year-old Brad without his consent. In an order that would have gone on my permanent record if the judge didn't throw it out, she claimed I threatened violence against her. Even though he was still recovering, Brad appeared in court on my behalf and sat next to me and my mother while cool mom Susan told the judge her biggest concern was keeping me from badmouthing her on social media. This is the same woman who messaged me from my boyfriend's Facebook page to call me a prostitute and say I disgust her so much she wants to vomit. 
So what is it about the internet that turns people with live, laugh, love wall art into monsters? As I struggled over what to include in this intense and deeply personal story, the words of my best friend weighed heavily on my mind. In a Facebook post that kept me from getting swallowed up in the ugliness of the attacks, she wrote, What if, in spite of how you feel right now, you choose to forgive? Attacking someone will satisfy only the darkest parts of you. It will result in self-punishment because you're a good person and you don't really want to hurt others, even if you think they totally deserve it. Stand in your dignity and let go of all the rest. While forgiveness is something I hope to achieve eventually, I must admit, I'm not there yet. But I want to make it clear that the choice to tell my story was not born out of a need for revenge. I don't want more people to suffer as a result of making this public, but I do want justice. Along with the catharsis that comes from getting all of this out, I feel the need to warn others and shine a light on the all-too-common cyberbullying that's happening all around us. And that's why I'm telling my story. Even though cybercrime and revenge porn is on the rise, these attacks are incredibly difficult to prove and harder to prosecute. Most police departments don't even have cybercrime divisions, so the decision to hire a digital forensics team to bring these criminals to justice was not made lightly. Not only is it a huge expense that I had to lean on friends and family to help cover, simply confronting these attackers opens me up to more of the same. If the Karens of the world are willing to go to these lengths over misplaced blame in the death of a loved one, what's in store for me when criminal charges are filed and these people are actually facing jail time? I'm honestly terrified to find out what they may have planned for me once I hit post, but doing nothing is a different kind of torture. These people, named and anonymous, have taken everything from me. Even now, months after Mark's death and Brad's near-fatal overdose, my life is still in pieces, shattered by people I know and strangers I hope to only ever meet in a courtroom. We felt it was important to leave you with this message from Brad. Even though most of the voices you've heard throughout this recording were dramatic readings to aid in the telling of this deeply personal story, the voice you are about to hear is actually that of Sabrina's boyfriend. I don't know how the video that Sabrina sent me ended up online. I never sent it to anyone, and I don't know how the people who posted it got it. But I do know that she deserves justice. We've all been through hell, and Sabrina just wants to move on with her life without living in fear of more attacks. Until these people are stopped, She can't promote her business or make a living. If this story struck a chord with you, please share it and click the link to the GoFundMe page, which will help cover the costs of the legal fees associated with pursuing and stopping the people responsible. Without the help and unwavering support of my very talented and generous friends, this project would not have been possible. Thanks to everyone who lent their voices, time, and expertise to help me tell my story on a budget that only allowed for my heartfelt gratitude. Thank you for believing in me and standing by me.